Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, Waiting Game. We have negotiated an accelerated delivery so that all of our 40 million doses coming from Pfizer will arrive prior to the end of September, including 10.8 million doses in the second quarter alone. More vaccine doses are coming, but in months, can Canada still hit its vaccine targets? Did the federal government block some provinces from trying to procure their own vaccine supply? And why haven't some provinces used all those rapid testing kits the federal government has provided them? The Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc, joins us on that. And then, vaccine rebel? The province's job is to get vaccines to Canadians. And this has been designated uh, as our responsibility. Uh, but if we can't do our job, uh, that then all Canadians suffer as a consequence. And we can't do our job if the federal government doesn't do its job. Why did Manitoba go it alone and put a down payment on a potential Made in Canada vaccine solution that might not be approved until after most Canadians are already vaccinated? And why did that province essentially ditch those federal rapid testing kits? We'll hear from the Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister on that. Plus, better down under. We will have the onshore production of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, beginning uh, to roll out vaccines for the Australian population. How is Australia producing 50 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine in their country and Canada couldn't? What lessons should Canada have learned from down under? We'll speak with the former Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. Then, third time's a charm. Why is the Green Party leader running in a Liberal stronghold she's already lost in twice? Is she gearing up for a spring election? Annamie Paul joins us on that and why she thinks Canada should not join the Olympics in Beijing 2022. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. We've received an updated delivery schedule from Pfizer that brings us to the end of March. And we can confirm we will be receiving the four million doses we've been committed to since last November from Pfizer by the end of the month. So the Canadian government has now secured 2.8 million more doses of the Pfizer vaccine between April and June. And they claim that this will actually accelerate the vaccination process. But at the same time, it's not going to change that final date of September to vaccinate all Canadians. Still, until then, the supplies are still very tight and Canada has fallen well, way down the list of countries that have vaccinated most of its citizens into the 40s. This has frustrated some provinces like Manitoba, who this week went out and purchased 2 million doses from a Canadian supplier, even though that potential supplier doesn't have this approved and may not be approved until next year. But have some provinces lost faith in the federal government's procurement plan? And on the other hand, is the federal government getting frustrated that the provinces have not used millions and millions of rapid tests that they've delivered but are gathering dust. Why is that happening? Talk about that and a lot more. I'm joined now by the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc. Good to have you back on the program, sir. Let, let me just start with Manitoba, and the Manitoba Premier is about to jump on the show after you, but they've gone out and bought 2 million doses of this potential vaccine from a, a company in Canada that I know the federal government has also invested in, but he's basically saying he needs an insurance plan because he doesn't trust that your government's going to deliver. Are you... Is, is the federal government's plan losing faith, uh, losing support from the provinces? I don't think so, Evan. The provinces know uh, that we continue to aggressively pursue 
the most doses of the approved vaccines that we can get on Canadian soil as quickly as possible. We've had some uh, additional success this week. We share the concern that Canadians have that the faster we can uh, immunize Canadians, the better it'll be not only for public health, but for the reopening of, of the economy. Um, we took note of what Premier uh, Pallister did. Uh, we have also invested in a number of Canadian uh, potential vaccine candidates. There's a company in Quebec called Medicago uh, that we have made a considerable investment in, and, and we'll continue to do right. that. And again, I just want people to appreciate that's not going to help you get vaccinated from now until September. This is, this is stuff for the future. Now, but he does claim that, his, that your, the federal government actively blocked his province's attempt to purchase supplies from AstraZeneca, from Janssen, from um, um, Pfizer, and from Moderna. That he says they have evidence, emails that said those co companies will not supply the provinces because the go federal government has blocked the province. True or not true? Uh, Evan, I, I don't think that's true. We've said all along that provinces are obviously sovereign orders of government and under our constitution, and they can make whatever business arrangements they want with any of these global pharmaceutical companies. Um, we think that as a country, we had a better chance and a better bargaining position uh, to get as many doses as quickly as we can of these approved vaccines. And we're hopeful, as you noted, a number of the companies you mentioned, we hope are approved in the coming days and coming weeks, which will give us even more opportunities to bring those vaccines to Canada quickly. But if provinces want to go on their own and contact these companies, uh, they're obviously free to do. Uh, Minister, what about the rapid tests? Your government has delivered, I think it's about 19 million rapid tests to the provinces. When you look down at the stats, um, provinces aren't using them. Brian Pallister hasn't even used one and a half percent of his. He basically described them as the Ford Pinto, that disastrous car that used to explode. Uh, he said they're just not good. What's the federal government's position? Should the provinces be using them? Are you disappointed that they're not? Uh, I'm sure, we're disappointed that provinces uh, that pushed very, very hard. You'll remember the public outcry led by a number of provincial leaders to hurry up and approve rapid tests and procure them quickly and get them into the hands of provincial health care officials, which we have done and which we did obviously happily because we think that it's part of a coherent testing and tracing approach across the country. Some provinces, like Ontario, for example, Evan, have been using them very effectively at, at points of care where they decide that they need that increased screening. Um, so we think that they have a perfectly appropriate role to play in a broader public health but they're not surveillance program. So, I mean, um, and we're encouraging, we're encouraging provinces to use them. Let me talk about the, what's in federal government's purview, which is supply. Your government said that in, in Q2, that's between April and June, Canada is going to receive a total of 23 million vaccine doses by the end of June from Pfizer and Moderna. So if Pfizer is sending you know, close to 11 million shots, Moderna commitment would be for 12 million doses. Uh, they initially planned, though, to vaccinate between 15 and 19 million people in that period of time. Uh, that would be impossible with just 23 million doses, right? So the math doesn't add up. So are you guys scaling back the doses for the second quarter? Or basically, are you just banking on the approval of AstraZeneca to fill that up? Like, what is it? Because it, the math's not adding up. 
So, Evan, we've said all along that uh, we're going to aggressively pursue uh, as many of these vaccine uh, candidacies as we can, obviously contingent on their approval by the Health Canada regulators. Everybody is expecting a decision, we hope, soon with respect to AstraZeneca. It's being used in a number of jurisdictions, for example, in Europe now. Uh, but Health Canada will make its decision based on the data they have. And if, if that's approved as safe and effective for Canadians, it will again be another tool that we'll have to vaccinate as many people even more quickly uh, than we might otherwise have. But uh, we've said from the beginning that with the two approved vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, we will be in a position to meet the targets we've set out. Uh, but we hope to have some better news along the way and to perhaps be able to exceed those targets. But we want to be sure that uh, obviously right. they're safe and effective for Canadians. Okay, yeah, and we don't know whether that's going to be approved. But, you know, we are waiting for the AstraZeneca approval, Minister, and, and then maybe Novavax or Johnson & Johnson. Some of these vaccines, there's, there's concerns that they might not be as effective against the new variants. You know, there's concern about AstraZeneca from South Africa against the South African variant. When these come, and we get this big deluge that the federal government's promising, Will citizens have the right to choose which vaccine they want? Like, I would like the Pfizer and I would like the Moderna, but I don't necessarily want the AstraZeneca because that might not be as effective against a variant. Or do you have to take what you take? Uh, Evan, that obviously is up to provincial uh, health authorities. The provinces uh, are the ones that are administering uh, these vaccines, these various vaccines to their their different populations in a sequence that they decide. And if some provinces decide to give people a menu and others don't, um, then that'll be their decision. Um, what we're doing is, is getting as quickly as we can, as many vaccines as we can uh, to the provinces and territories, and they'll decide how best to deploy them. All right, I, I gotta leave it there. Dominic O'Blanc, always good to have you on the program. Thank you, sir. So thank you, Evan, have a great day. All right, coming up, we get the provincial side. Why is Manitoba trying to find a vaccine solution from a Canadian supplier? Are they dissatisfied with the federal government supply? And why aren't they using their rapid tests? Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister joins us next, right here on Question Period. Stay with us. And respect that, that, that there is a the single regulator at the federal level for all vaccines that uh, uh, you know wish to uh, you know be approved in Canada for use. So I'm not quite sure I understand in terms of uh, how uh, individual jurisdictions uh, may enter into any sort of agreement with a uh, sort of a sort of at this point uh, sort of unapproved uh, products. Going it alone. Frustrated by the federal government's vaccine supply plan, Manitoba has now decided to buy its own made-in-Canada potential vaccine. The province announced it will purchase 2 million vaccines from the Alberta-based Providence Therapeutics. Now, that company's vaccine is currently in clinical trials. It's a long way away from Health Canada approval. But the company's CEO told me on CTV's PowerPlay last month that they struggled to get real serious federal government support and they could have been much further along in their vaccine if they had got more buy-in from Ottawa. So why is Manitoba doing this? And if these made in Canada vaccines aren't ready until, I don't know, sometime next year or next fall, is it too little too late? And the other question is why are so many provinces like Manitoba not using the rapid test kits that the federal government provided them? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Manitoba Premier, Brian Pallister from 
cold, cold uh, Manitoba. So we are, we're with you there on the cold, and I hope you're doing well there. Why did you decide to go with Providence and try to, try to suddenly get your own vaccines for your province? First of all, maybe cold, but we have the friendliest people in the country here, Evan. Uh, we decided that uh, a Made in Canada solution was clearly going to be something that we needed going forward, uh, not just in Manitoba, but as a country. And uh, we, we feel that this is insurance in case the delays that we're all, all experiencing with some frustration continue much longer. Justin Trudeau and Anita Nan, they both said, look, there's going to be 6 million doses by the end of March. Every Canadian who wants a vaccine will have it by September. That's long before Providence Therapeutics would ever get any kind of approval. You know that. Do you not believe that the government will come through? That's just with the Pfizer and Moderna, let alone if AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson come in. Do you doubt this plan, these targets? Well, I, I use the analogy of insurance for a reason. You don't buy it because you want to have things fall apart, but you buy it in case they do. If the federal government, which now ranks, I think, 37th on getting vaccines out to people, uh, continues to have problems with its supply chain, we need to establish a new supply chain. And so having a backup plan is a smart idea anytime. And I think also, remember, this isn't a short-term thing. We're going to have a marathon fight here with COVID and potentially with variants. We're going to have boosters needed next year, very likely. And why not have them made in Canada as opposed to... Uh, being at the whims of a foreign provider. I'm just intrigued by this. Um, it's an certainly an interesting possibility. Uh, it's not probably going to help for this first dose of the vaccine until September. You know that. They're months or years away from approval. The clinical trial they're doing is like, I think it's 60 people, so it's pretty tiny. Uh, some of your opponents are saying, you know what you're doing? You're playing politics. You're giving people false hope. It's an insurance plan for way in the future. It doesn't really help for the now. What do you say? Well, I'd say that my opponents are demonstrating the stupidity and frustration of short-term thinking. They uh, are not thinking about the future. I am. Our province is. Uh, we were blocked uh, in our ability to uh, pursue additional vaccines from uh, any of the companies the federal government had dealt with, which was virtually all of them. Uh, we found a company that is Canadian-based with a good reputation uh, that we think uh, is a good partner. We've established an agreement with them to get production here. If we need it this year, it's there. If we don't, we'll use it for next year and we'll use it for future years. Let me pick up on something you've said to me a number of times. You said the federal government has blocked the province from trying to procure vaccines. Uh, you know the federal government and Anita Nan, the procurement minister, has denied that. They say that's not true. How exactly are you suggesting they blocked your province from trying to acquire vaccines? Every premier knows the subnational government agreements were uh, abolished essentially when the federal government signed deals with the major providers. We've knocked on these doors. We've been doing this for months now. Look, when the federal government promised that we would get PPE and then didn't deliver, we actually took action here to solve our problem in Manitoba with small businesses partnering to provide the PPE we needed, 95% of it. And we knew right away that we couldn't always count on the federal government to deliver on things they hadn't done in the past. Remember that health care is delivered by the provinces, not by federal governments. So this is a new thing for the feds. And I am not trying to bash the feds here, but I don't like getting bashed on, with false information and well, false Well, what's the assertions. information? No but how, how did they block? Uh, this is important. Oh, we'll, we'll You're saying you they, blo they, they block provincial governments from trying to get yeah, some absolute, vaccines? Absolutely. Absolutely. The major vaccine pr producers will not sign contracts with the provincial governments. They're precluded from doing so by their agreements with the feds. So you, you bet, and, and you're saying that the federal government 
actively blocked it or they were just trying to use the power of the federal government because they said they're in charge of procurement because they're saying they never blocked provinces from trying to find their own vaccine supply. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, I'll let the facts stand as they are. I, all I can tell you, I have no trouble with the federal government going out and communicating their rationale for being the sole purchaser and distributor of vaccines if they want. But when they go out and they say that they didn't stop the provinces from buying from AstraZeneca or uh, Moderna or anybody else, they're actually not telling the truth, Evan. I want to talk to you about um, rapid testing. Uh, CBC News had reported they did a breakdown of something that the federal government has said, that the provinces are not using the rapid tests that they gave. Uh, Manitoba, your provinces barely use 1.5% of the 600,000 rapid test kits. They've been sitting there. <coughs> Uh, epidemiologists I've spoken to, uh, chief medical health officers saying, why aren't they using this? They are effective as surveillance and data. They may not be perfect diagnostically, but they still have huge benefits for the economy and for health, and they're gathering dust. Why? Well, we've bought other equipment that works better. $50 million invested in uh, other devices that we find are more appropriate for our needs at this point in time. Uh, for example, we have uh, dispatched uh, rapid testing uh, equipment to uh, our communities in the city of Winnipeg and around the province to assist uh, teachers in being able to get tested so that they can determine if they can go back to work safely and, and uh, get back with their kids and help them. Uh, and uh, we're rolling out even more of those machines because they are more reliable uh, and they suit our purposes. This is not a knock on uh, Abbott as a company or its product, but it has a lower reliability and it's not designed for the purposes that but, we are using our rapid testing for. All right, Premier Pallister, thanks so much. Got to leave it there. Yeah, my pleasure, Evan. Thank you. Now, we reached out to AstraZeneca to ask if their contract indeed did block the provinces from buying their drug, as Premier Pallister has alleged. They wrote to us saying, quote, AstraZeneca signed an agreement with the Government of Canada on September 25th, 2020, to supply 20 million doses of our vaccine. This agreement or contract does not preclude provincial contracts. So there you go, that's from AstraZeneca. Coming up on this program though, third time lucky. Why is the Green Party leader running again in a Liberal stronghold? She's already lost twice to talk about that and the new restrictions on travel. Are they too tight or not tight enough? The scrum is next and our special guest will be the Green Party leader, Annamie Paul. Stay right here with Question Period. So as of February 22nd, travelers entering Canada by air or by land will face hotel quarantines, new testing requirements. All this comes as the airline industry is facing massive new job losses. You've got 1,500 job losses from Air Canada. Bombardier laid off another 1,600 people. Canada in total lost over 213,000 jobs in January, according to StatsCan. So is the economic crisis deepening as the wait for more vaccines continues. All this as the government is preparing for a big spring budget that could trigger an election. It's a minority government after all. But an election in a pandemic, the Newfoundland and Labrador election has just been delayed because of the virus. So can a federal election really happen? Well, if it does, the Green Party leader, Annamie Paul, has just said she's planning to run again in the Liberal stronghold in Toronto, Toronto Centre, where she's already lost twice. Why pick that seat if she needs a seat in Parliament? To dig into all of that, let's bring in the scrum. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief, joins us. 
Bob Fife, the Ottawa Bureau Chief at the Globe and Mail, joins us. Our special guest for this round is the Green Party leader herself, Annamie Paul. Good morning to all of you. Gosh, lots to get through. Let's just start with what impacts you, uh, Annamie Paul. First of all, I guess your party must be preparing for a possible election because you've just announced you're, you're running in Toronto Centre again. You've already lost there twice. Why run there now? And, and maybe tell us if you really do believe an election is imminent. We have to prepare as if an election is imminent. It's unfortunate because we're still in the second wave. Uh, almost everyone in Canada still needs to get vaccinated. They're still waiting for their shot. So I wouldn't want to see uh, this parliament uh, this parliament dissolve, but we can see lots of signs that preparations are underway, so we have to be prepared. And in my case, uh, you know, anywhere that I run is going to be a brand new seat that we have to win. The other parties are definitely not going to be doing me any favors. It's going to be an uphill battle wherever I go. And I really wanted uh, to try to win a seat where I know that having me represented could make a real difference and where it was clear that a lot of uh, voters in that community were ready for a real change even in the by-election we saw that bob uh, the leaders need a seat and jagmeet singh flew across the country to burnaby he finally got a seat uh Annamie paul's as she just said she's taken a, a tough road uh, what do you make of a the possibility of a spring election but also from the green party's point of view a third crack at a pretty tough riding for enemy paul well, first of all, I'm not sure we're going to have a spring election, uh, given the fact that the pandemic vaccine rollout is pretty slow. Uh, and I cannot imagine many people, if they don't have a jab in their arms, going into a voting uh, booth and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, Justin Trudeau, I'm voting for the Liberals. Uh, secondly, uh, it would be great to have Annamie Paul in, in Parliament. She's an impressive uh, leader of the Green Party. But running in the riding she's lost twice before, I mean, it, the problem with that riding, in my view, is that you could run a Liberal as a, as a, a, goal, as a, a fence post in that riding and win. So it's a, it's a very difficult, uh, uh, difficult riding to win. Good luck to you. But uh, if I was advising you, I'd say look somewhere else. Enemy Paul, let's talk about new border restrictions. Travelers are, are, are facing these things, but the new variant's coming. Is all this, you know, the quarantines, the new testing, in your view, too little, too late, or the right thing to do no matter what? My main concern with uh, these, uh, these new quarantine restrictions is to make sure that they're fair and equitable. I'm very concerned that there are people who are going to need to travel for very important reasons, whether it's family reunification or taking care of family, ailing family in other parts of the world that are and that can't afford a $2,000 three-day quarantine in a hotel that are going to be caught up in this. And so we really have to be careful about the unintended consequences, uh, make sure that uh, we're being fair to every single person uh, who may be traveling uh, for what for whatever reason outside of the country. Yeah, and Joyce, also in the last week, there have been big announcements of infrastructure for cities, uh, transit. Uh, maybe there's going to be a bailout for the airline industry. But, you know, this economic crisis is starting to, to set in. And I guess all eyes will go on Christian Freeland for this budget because it's becoming a very difficult situation. We're falling back economically as well as on the vaccine track. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, on the bailout of the of the airline industry, there's a slight little problem that they're having. And probably that's why it's taking so long. We know that the airlines owe Canadians two billion dollars uh, when in the first wave. I know that was a long time ago, but people had to cancel their flights because 
um, there was a pandemic. The Canadian airlines haven't paid those back to Canadian travelers. They have to international travelers, not to Canadian travelers. So the government is in an interesting position of wanting to bail out the airline industry with the money of taxpayers while these, this airline industry owes these taxpayers billions of dollars. Right. So that is a conundrum for the federal government and that's probably why it's taking so long. You know, the, the budget, uh, Christian Freeland's budget is going to be a historic one. It's not going to be before April uh, because March is really too soon and they are waiting for vaccines. They want this roll-up to be, you know, sort of doing a little bit better than it is now, which is not that difficult. Uh, before they, they, they bring this budget out. So mm -hmm. that's going to be a budget. Don't expect them to balance the books. Yeah. Okay, go out on a limb there, Joyce. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, uh, last thing before we go. Uh, a number of MPs, Conservative, Liberal, uh, NDP, and Green, signed a letter this week saying that uh, the Olympics should be moved from Beijing 2022. Uh, they could move it other places or boycott it altogether. The Canadian Olympic Committee and the Canadian Paralympic Committee are saying, no, uh, boycotts don't work, we shouldn't do that. Uh, there's a great debate about that, given what uh, is going on in China, not just with the two Michaels and Hong Kong, but um, Canada has not come to the conclusion that there's a formal genocide against the Uyghurs, the Muslim minority in Western China, but a parliamentary committee has. Enemy Paul, should Canada make not just a position on boycotting the Olympics or move it, but what would that mean for trade with China in general? Our party believes that there is an ongoing genocide being perpetrated against the Uyghur and other Muslim minorities there. And under those circumstances, I cannot imagine how we could support um, providing a global platform to China by celebrating our 2022 Winter Olympics there. So do you think we should be selling uh, agricultural goods to China, taking investment from China. If you believe they're committing a genocide, where does, is, is it just about the Olympics or what else has to stop? This is, this is a moment where we absolutely have to reevaluate every single part of our relationship with China. The fact that our, our countries and our economies are very integrated is not an excuse not to do that under the circumstances. When you have a country that is so flagrantly uh, violating international human rights and fundamental rights, uh, the international community, international allies who, who condemn that uh, should be consulting very actively on what measures uh, they can put in place to bring that state back into compliance with international law. All right, I got to leave it there. Um, Bob and Joyce are going to join us later. Annamie Paul, Green Party leader, great to have you back on the program. Thank you. When we come back, Australia's model. Why did that country do so much better throughout this pandemic than Canada? What lessons could Canada learn and why are they domestically producing 50 million doses of AstraZeneca, Canada producing none? The former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Australia is in one of the strongest positions in the world, not only because the work of every Australian in containing the spread of the coronavirus, but also because of our onshore manufacturing agreement with CSL, which provides certainty of vaccine supply at a time of immense international competition and uncertainty. 
So Australia will soon be producing 50 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine domestically right in Melbourne. And it's just one more example of what that country has done to keep its COVID numbers low and this in check. Their economy is open. It's growing. People are living their lives very differently there than here in Canada. For example, since the beginning of the pandemic, Canada has reported more than 820,000 cases of COVID and sadly, more than 21,000 deaths. Australia has reported slightly more than 28,800 cases and fewer than 1,000 deaths. Early use of testing, travel restrictions, quarantines and stay-at-home orders have brought COVID-19 numbers there to near zero. In Australia, restaurants are open, gatherings are taking place and life is seemingly returning to somewhat normal. So why has a country so similar to Canada had such better outcomes at managing the pandemic? What lessons can Canada learn from Australia on that and on dealing with China? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd. Mr. Rudd, great to have you on Question Period this morning. Uh, let's talk about the situation both in Australia and in Canada. Australia at times took very draconian measures to control COVID-19. Cities were quarantined, the borders were completely shut. In your view, what's been the key to Australia's relative success dealing with the virus compared to, say, Canada's? Well, I'm very cautious to compare Australia with a country like Canada, not least because we're surrounded by ocean and you guys have this very long uh, land border with the United States, which, as we know, has been something of a disaster zone as far as effective management of COVID-19 is concerned. Very difficult to quarantine yourself away from American mismanagement uh, of, the, uh, of the virus during the course of 2020. Here in Australia, a couple of quick reflections, though. Uh, one, learning a lot from our New Zealand cousins across the Tasman Sea, uh, the Australian government uh, did close national borders very early in the piece, um, and that uh, generated considerable reaction, not least from China. But this was uh, an appropriate uh, course of action to begin dealing with the challenge at home. Then secondly, because our federation, a little like the Canadian Federation, vests uh, uh, powers for the health system in the hands of the state or provincial governments here. The state governments in Australia, by and large, have then handled uh, the local management of contact tracing, um, lockdown, partial lockdown, uh, increasingly effectively over time. The vaccine rollout here is uh, very slow. In fact, it hasn't even begun here. But in part, that's because there's less of a sense of national urgency because the overall caseload for COVID-19 in Australia is relatively low. Yeah, you have low caseload and actually you've got economic growth, which is kind of uh, remarkable. But, but let me just pick up on what you said about the vaccines. The rollout is slow. The urgency, though, is not high either. It's low. Nonetheless, Australia will get the AstraZeneca vaccine produced in your own country. 50 million doses will be produced in a factory in Melbourne. Uh, the health ministry said essentially that Australia foresaw that there would be a fight for countries to get hold of the vaccine and license production. They wanted sovereign production. In your view, how important was that to make sure that, you know, given what you're seeing around the world, a lot of vaccine nationalism, how important is it to have a domestic production? Well, you see both in terms of PPE, protective equipment, personal protective equipment now and now in vaccines, there's a rolling debate in all uh, liberal democracies about the extent to which we should be relying upon 
national self-sufficiency on the one hand um, and or continued dependency on international supply on the other. And so I think all nation states are reaching, um, shall we say, more conservative conclusions about this over time. Certainly when there was a scarcity of PPE, the debates all around the world, including in Australia, were about why aren't we manufacturing more of this locally. On vaccines here in Australia, we're advantaged by the uh, long-term existence of a company called CSL. Once a government-owned operation called the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, then privatised some decades ago, uh, which continues to base its operations out of Australia. That's been the advantage here, that is the inbuilt capacity to be able to pump up supply of vaccines locally. But like other countries, we're still subject in part to the restrictions on international supply and distribution as well. Let's talk about China. Uh, Australia is bearing the brunt uh, from demanding that there be an international inquiry into a China's handling or mishandling of the pandemic when it first broke out in Wuhan. Now, China has been retaliating in a trade very uh, strongly against Australia. Um, what has it been like for a middle power like Australia, and obviously, again, relevant for Canada, dealing with China on this? And what does it tell you about the China of 2021? Well, wrestling with any thousand-pound gorilla in the front living room is always a challenge. Uh, and that's what you're dealing with with the People's Republic of China. Remember, it's the world's second largest economy. It's the largest trading power in the world, the largest importer in the world, the largest exporter in the world, the largest manufacturer in the world. Uh, and increasingly one of the largest sources of foreign direct investment. And so therefore, uh, this is a formidable power to deal with in purely economic terms, while still being run by a Marxist-Leninist system, political system. So this presents generic challenges for all liberal democracies to deal with. In Australia's case, you're right. Uh, the Chinese government took umbrage at calls by the Australian government unilaterally to establish a full and independent global inquiry into the origins of the uh, coronavirus. And the punitive measures came thick and fast. Uh, and this uh, has uh, had a real impact on various sectors of the Australian uh, export, uh, export industry. Uh, but Australians are a fairly resilient lot and they don't particularly like being pushed around. So I'm not sure that this will be productive in terms of a punitive measure against Australia for the long term. But if you look at life under President Xi Jinping, uh, which you studied well, significantly more aggressive uh, position against human rights, the horrific treatment of the Muslim Uyghur minority, which some have called a genocide. Canada has not, by the way, formally done that. The clampdown on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. For Canadians, the arbitrary detention of two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. So, so how does, you know, what lessons can Canada draw and what do you, how do middle powers like Canada and Australia deal with China uh, when they're doing this kind of thing? When China deals with um, smaller powers and middle powers, uh, which have in Beijing's calculus uh, crossed uh, China on key questions of national interest and national values, there's a certain psychology which takes root in Beijing. The Chinese expression for it is... Uh, Sha Yi Jingbei, which is kill one to warn a hundred. And you see this template applied time and time again. Australia, as you know, is not unique, although it's the most recent cab off the rank. The case of the two Michaels in Canada arising over the position of the Canadian government on the US um, uh, application for the extradition of Madame Mung uh, is well known. So what do you do about this? Uh, 
my argument's pretty simple, is that uh, the one thing about Marxist Leninists is they do respect power. And therefore, it's very important in dealing with these sorts of pressures for like-minded liberal democracies to work together mm -hmm. rather than separately. Canada's trying to get the two Michaels out. It's been a urgent political issue. Uh, there is some international support. It hasn't budged China at all. Uh, what's the best tactic at this point for to, to, to help get those two men out? There are very few other measures which could have been adopted. And let's be brutal about this. The Trump administration in Washington didn't exactly help on this. Now, what therefore presents itself as a new set of opportunities? Um, my argument for a long time in relation to the case of the two Michaels is that if the United States uh, Department of Justice, particularly under this new administration, was to redefine the alleged offences of Madame Mung uh, as a civil offence rather than a criminal offence, uh, suddenly the requirement for criminal extradition uh, of Madame Mung from Canada to the United States disappears. Hmm. And if that disappears under those circumstances, there's an opportunity for high-level diplomacy to ensure that Madame Mung's uh, release uh, occurred simultaneously with the release and repatriation of the two Michaels. I think, therefore, the ball very much lies in the Biden administration's court on this, um, and I would hope uh, that these would be the sorts of considerations going through the minds of uh, the administration in Washington. All right, uh, listen, I really appreciate uh, your, your time this morning and your perspective on all these things. Kevin Rudd, thank you, sir. Good to be with you. All right. Or not to open. That or is the not great to open. debate. That yes. is the great debate. The curve is yes. going down, but the curve is, it is going down. But is it time for provinces to loosen restrictions on hard-hit businesses or is the risk of a surge from variability? Too big a possibility. Scrub away in next on all that and more with our special guest, Dr. Abdushakhawi. Stay right here. Stay right here with questions. My Living Well Companion Go gives me the confidence to keep doing the things I enjoy independently. It's Canada's most affordable personal emergency response service with no term contract or hidden fees. Plus, it comes with automatic fall detection and Canada-wide GPS coverage. It gives me and my loved ones peace of mind to know I have access to support if I need it. Living Well Companion. Worry less, live more. When you're looking for effective pain relief, choose Tylenol. It's clinically proven to start working in 15 to 20 minutes. Get to know your pain reliever. Tylenol. There's a plan for every ambition with CIBC Goal Planner. It helps you clearly map your goals and easily track your progress. So no matter your ambition, let's get it moving with CIBC Goal Planner. CIBC, ambitions made real. Hello, how can I? Sore throat pain? Try new Vicks Cool Drops. It's not candy, it's medicated relief. Plus it tastes like... Vaporize sore throat pain with new Vicks Cool Drops. Do you know exactly what's in your water? Just ask Reliance. We'll assess your water purification needs and make sure your family gets the best water possible. And right now, get $200 off a water purification system. Want great water now? Call Reliance.
not reliant. Do you have dry, cracked hands from constant washing, cold weather, and hard work? Try O'Keefe's Working Hands, guaranteed relief for extremely dry, cracked hands. Also available in O'Keefe's for healthy feet, guaranteed relief for extremely dry, cracked feet. The Angry King is back. Flame grilled patties and bacon with blazing jalapenos, angry onions, and angry sauce. It's got mad heat. Grab the Angry King at Burger King. Order through Skip the Dishes and pay no delivery fee with a minimum order. Meet Jeff. In his life, he's been to the bottom of the ocean, the tops of mountains, the ER, twice, and all the places this guy runs off to. Like Jeff's, a life well lived should continue at home. Home Instead offers customized services from personal care to memory care, so older adults can stay home, stay safe, and stay happy. Home Instead, to us, it's personal. Noah, it's important to know the origin of a product. I know. Look, the olive oil with the horse. We know where it's harvested and bottled. Transparency and traceability from our orchards to you is our promise at Terra de Lisa. Back in India, I was a CEO of a big company. But when my family moved to Canada, I had to start all over. Somebody told me about Indeed, and last year I got my dream job at an automotive company. This job gave me my life back. No one ever dreams about the problems, but every life has them. Even the extraordinary ones. But what's going to happen when we get these millions of vaccines arriving? The Good Doctor, all new, Monday at 10, 8 Mountain, only on CTV. On getting those shots in people's arms. If they the new variants get, that are more communicable, to do the uh, more easily transmitted, rapid are increasingly out Joyce, just weigh in so on that. The lack of use care. of the rapid Nobody test, that has led to a lot of the closings and then the reopenings and the second wave. Of, of course, there's going to be that daily variance that can cause real challenges. What really I am most puzzled about is that they reopen debate. Should explanations be reopening now despite fears of a third wave? Deploying these rapid test kits that are sitting. Of COVID uh, you know, gathering dust so across the country is, well, they're not completely accurate, you know, it's 70%. By the well, you know government. what, I got news the for them. 70% is better than 0%. The kids just they aren't are very tool good. In a tool He's got better ones. And they are a tool that, that can be deployed in schools, grows, for instance. So here the provinces are forcing teachers back to school. The by the Let's thousands out, across the country with absolutely no protection. Um, they're not on any list to get vaccinated anytime soon that I could see. At least these rapid tests could help out the staff in the schools. We know they're not 100% accurate, but certainly better than not having anything. In your view, would it have been a smart move to deploy these more quickly to help stop the outbreaks? There's models in question about it. You need look no further than Nova Scotia to see where the deployment of rapid tests have had a real impact in terms of being able to identify cases with greater ease and with greater accessibility in the conventional PCR times. I think it's probably the worst possible time to be opening up, especially when we don't have an optimal testing strategy. We're not deploying rapid tests or any means to be able to identify particularly in, in places like essential works like schools 
You're or bound to pick up many more settings, settings like where you would in other places when you're we know of a pandemic disproportionately affected by something as definitive as putting our hands in the fire and things around. The question for me is no sense at all to get a third wave to fight these resources. How bad is it going to be? And are we going to get enough vaccines to mitigate this so that we can avoid? A and third just, lockdown, you know, and that's not a good thing to be considering right now. Is, all just those deadlines are going to be politics here. So in the midst of the hear Dr. Sharkowski says, you know, they've had lockdowns, and we're talking about reopening or not. Second wave, Manitoba wave, and they're not using the tools. The federal government buy our own made in Canada vaccine. So what do you make of it? Maybe until next year. Look, it's mind-boggling. We all had an opportunity over the summer for the provinces to get their acts together because all the healthcare officials were saying there will be a second wave and it will be worse than the first wave. So one would have assumed well, I think in, in September we would have uh, had Premier all of these rapid testing and testing uh, we, uh, we do need to ready have and, and, uh, and being used in the communities and that sure hasn't that been the case. And yes, the provinces are right that Justin Trudeau and the federal government have really screwed uh, I'm, up I'm afraid, the delivery of vaccines. But what's going to happen when we get these millions of vaccines arriving sometime in April and the provinces can't deliver on getting those shots in the have to do arms that if they very, couldn't very quickly. Get uh, but the issue really right now, and it's absolutely crucial, is that we need to get vaccines quicker than we are getting them. The Not only because people are dying, and but it's the, the only way we're going to get our now, economy back course, rolling again. It's stagnant, and we well, need to get shots in people's arms and get the economy going again. Otherwise, we're going to be in a situation, as the doctor just said, where we're going to hit with another third wave, and goodness, it could be worse than the second. Joyce, just weigh in last word to you on that. What does it tell you when Manitoba started well, yeah, look, you know we what? I got go news for them. We know it's not 70% right now, is better than 0%. They are a tool in a toolbox. And they are a tool that Even can be deployed as many in schools, for instance. By so here are the provinces. I think we should all get behind teachers that, back actually. to school. I think that, by yes, the it is, thousands there is some across the country with absolutely no protection. But there's also something very They're not on any list to get vaccinated anytime soon that I could see. The message that we got from pharmaceutical companies is very disconcerting. The staff in the schools. Not um, one. We not know four. they're not 100% Seven pharmaceutical certainly companies better than not having anything to produce their vaccines in, in the Canada. Minute. We should have been a lot more aggressive. Got, uh, we should have put a lot more money variant. into that. I think we're smart people, and I'm all for actually, a made in Canada solution. And if like it comes Ontario, from Brian Pallister, really I don't care where it comes from. I think we should be talking about that a lot more. Alright, I've heard a way off, but where are you on this? Should we be opening up, or should we be hanging on a bit? Joyce Napier, great to have the three of you back on the program. Well, I think you know the answer to that. At this point in time, I think it's probably the worst possible time to be opening up, especially we don't have an optimal testing strategy. We're not deploying rapid tests or any means of being able to identify cases in congregative environments like schools or essential worker settings like warehouses.